This morning, we are going to, uh, in Matthew's gospel, before we get to the resurrection, we do have to cover the crucifixion. And it is fitting at this time, we, we, we celebrate the birth, but, but without the death, the birth is pretty useless. Um, the two are tied in a way that you can't have one without the other. And so I think it's fitting for us in this Christmas season. I mean, what, what, a, what a great contrast between singing songs of celebrating Mary and the child and then the cross, our salvation. These two things have come together in the person and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that, that's our goal is to get through uh, the crucifixion that we're gonna be reading in Matthew chapter 27. Uh, and I'm gonna read verses 27 through 61. And so my, my goal is for us to get through this crucifixion, but, but ultimately my, my main goal, um, as I'm just sitting there this morning thinking, my main goal is for whoever you are, every single person here this morning, um, I don't care how long you've been in this church, I don't care how long you followed Jesus, I don't, I don't care why you're here, um, I, I, I care about you, but I don't care about why you're here. But my goal for you this morning my goal for me this morning is that as a result of us looking at this word, of, of us seeing the, the crucifixion, my goal, my hope, my prayer is that you might love Christ more. It's that simple. Whether you don't know him at all, I pray that you would love him as a result of seeing what he did on the cross for you. And if, if you've been following him, if you've loved him for decades, my, my goal is that seeing him anew, afresh this morning, that you would love him more. That that's the goal of the Christian life, to grow in our love for Christ. Because as we behold him and his glory, we are transformed and become more and more like him. So I don't have anything new to say this morning. I just want to present to you Christ crucified and, and tell you that he died for a reason in the place of sinners. And, and that is you. And so my hope is that you might love Christ more as a result of this. And so I'm going to read our passage. You can follow along. It's going to be a bit of a lengthy passage, but, but we will read it. Uh, and then we will work through it together. So Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 27. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the Bible in front of you on the pew back, uh, and it's on page 834, and we'll actually carry over into page 835. But Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 27, here's what the gospel of Matthew records. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and they put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him, that is Jesus, wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and they kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put a char the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. 
Let him come down now from the cross and, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it, they said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of James, the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered that it be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. I want to keep reading all the way through, but that's where we're going to stop this week. Come back next week and, and we'll, we'll get to the, the sequel there. Uh, but let's pray uh, before we look at, at these verses together. Father, this morning as we, as we journey to Calvary, as, as we study this account of the crucifixion of the Son of God, I pray that you would, that you would inspire us to love him more. Lord, would you use your word for your purposes to accomplish all that you intend to do in our hearts and minds? And I do, I pray that all of us here would, would grow in our love for the one who laid down his life so that we might be forgiven. And so increase our love for our Savior. It's in his name we pray, amen. Well, some of you may be thinking that that's a lot to cover here. Uh, and, and I realize that, and I know that, that our normal practice, if we work through verse by verse, even if I, if I spoke on like 1.25 or 1.5, right on podcast speed, you guys know that, that even if I spoke on a, a, a heightened pace, we could still be here for well over an hour, and I don't want to do that. So I'm going to try something different this morning. Famous last words, right? <laughs> but so, so here, so let me tell you what we're going to do. And, and hopefully it'll make sense and you'll follow with me. But, but as we look at the, the, this large passage, there's, there's two sections here. And so the two points are the crucifixion and its consequences. Okay, so, so that's, that's our, our main outline, the crucifixion and its consequences. So the crucifixion is there, verses 27 through 50, and the consequences are there, 51 through 61. 
And, and so that's the, that's the main two points. Now, instead of going verse by verse through all these, I've gone through these sections and I've pulled out the main themes here. And so under the first section, there, there's three themes that run through those verses that we're going to look at the three of those in order to understand the passage. And the second point, the consequence is there's two themes that run through that we're going to just pull out and look. Now, hopefully that makes sense. If not, just, just give me your ear and I'm confident that you will get the picture as we move along. So, so there first, the crucifixion, verses 27 through, through 50, we, we see that the, the action of these verses. And, and most of you, I, I assume, are familiar with what takes place here. Uh, but, but to get here, remember, Jesus has gone from, from it's not too long ago, he was anointed at Bethany. He was in the upper room with his disciples. He was arrested in Gethsemane. He was standing trial before Caiaphas in the council. Then he was taken to Pilate and finally was convicted and sentenced to death. And as we get to these verses, the, the verdict has been declared. Pilate has, has washed his hands. The king has been delivered over to be crucified. So that's where we, where we are here. And in these verses, we, we see Jesus in this, this immediate preparation for crucifixion, but we also witness the actual crucifixion of the Son of God. Which surprisingly, here in Matthew, I don't know if you noticed there, it's, it's verse 35, and all Matthew says is, when they had crucified him, they delivered, they, they, they put, the, what is it, divided his clothes. And so it's a, a, a relatively small um, amount of wordage, verbiage given to the actual crucifixion, just like all the other gospel accounts. Their concern is, is all that's going on. It, it's a scene that all the gospels paint of what happens. And so here in the crucifixion, we see that the, the culmination and fulfillment of God's plan in, in sending his son to die on the cross, the, the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world by, by dying on a cross in the place of ruined sinners. It is a magnificent crucifixion if there is such a thing. And so we see this crucifixion. So I just wanna draw your attention to three themes that run through this account of the crucifixion. First is the truth of the taunting or, or the truth of the taunts. And, and, and what I mean is that as Matthew is recording these verses, he's, he's highlighting the ways the, the soldiers and, and the people and the religious leaders, all those who are there, that the way they're responding to Jesus on the cross. And he's recording it to show us the irony of the truth behind their statements. This is God in flesh on the cross. And in the minds of the people, this is a man who falsely claimed to be the king of Jew, the Jews, who's, who's, who's justly suffering crucifixion. And so in their minds, as they behold the crucifixion of Jesus, there's no way that the claims of Jesus are true. That there's no way in their minds that this man is any sort of king sent by God. So they decide, hey, we're gonna have a little fun with this, with this mock king, this faux king, or, or we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna challenge him to, to prove himself, to, to validate his lofty claims while he's hanging on the cross suffering and dying. And the irony is, in their mocking, in their taunting, they're actually declaring what is true about the man hanging on the cross. And I think Matthew wants to see that. So notice, notice the, the soldiers, what they do in verses 27 through 31. So, so they have him, probably, probably many more criminals that have been in the possession of the Roman soldiers, that they have him, but they know what's going on. He's the, the king of the Jews, he's declared that. And so they strip him and they put a robe on him. And then they, they twist together a, a crown made of thorns and they, they press it on his head. And then they get a reed or a stick and they, they put it in his right hand. And so you have a, a robe and a crown and a scepter. These are all symbols of something. They're, they're symbols of, of royal authority. They're, they're symbols of, of regality. This is them mocking 
this man before them. They clothe Jesus. They provide him with a crown and, and a scepter, not because they believe he's king, because they know, in fact, he's, there's no way he's the king. And so they mock him and they taunt him. Notice what they say, hail, hail king of the Jews. And so as these men, just think about it. These men, they're Roman soldiers and, and in their minds, they know power and, and rule. They know what it looks like for a king to have might. They know the ruthlessness and bloodshed that often accompanies the, the, the flexing of true authority. And as they look at the man before them, this, this gentle, meek, silent sufferer who's, who's on his way to death by crucifixion, they know he's not a king. And so their treatment of him is only to them mockery. But to us, as we read, to us and to, to Matthew, who's writing this gospel, who spent the entire gospel making the case that this is not just a king, who, a man who claims to be king, this is the king, the Lord of lords, God with us, the incarnate one who, the true king who has come to establish the kingdom of God. They don't know it, but their words and actions are truer than they could have ever imagined. Which is why I think Matthew focuses on these interactions. Notice verse 27, notice the sign that's placed over his head. The sign reads, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Again, the irony here, and we know from John's gospel, that this sign was, was put up by Pilate and it was actually in three different languages. It was Aramaic, Greek, and Latin, so that anyone who walked by could read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And the religious leaders see that, and they say, no, 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 this is a mistake. That's not who he is. He's not our king. That's just what he said. So Pilate changed that to say, this, this man said he was the King of the Jews. And Pilate says, I've, I've written what I've written. I'm not changing it. And so we, we see God, the irony is that this man is the King of the Jews, but it's not just the Jews. He is the King of all. The sign is Right? And they're treating him as a king is the correct response. They're just using the wrong symbols. He is a king and should be treated as such. Notice also the irony of the things that the people say. The words, those who are passing by, they're deriding him. They're, they're wagging their heads. And they're saying, verse 40, you who destroy the temple and rebuild it, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And so these individuals, they're picking up the false charges that, that preceded this, this crucifixion. The, the, the chief priest, they heard this claim that this man said he would destroy the temple and, and, and raise it back up. And so they're bringing that and say, hey, if you're going to do that, what, what's going on now? Save yourself if you're going to destroy the temple. Surely you have enough power to save yourself. But, but notice their assumption. If you are the son of God, the assumption, you can't be. But if you are the son of God, come down. If you are, come down. If you come down, we will accept your testimony. That'll be proof to us. So, so prove yourself to us. Right? They're demanding, do what we're demanding you to do. Prove that you are who you say you are. As if Jesus had done nothing throughout the entire ministry to prove that he was who he said he was. One more act is not going to be enough for these people. They're mocking him knowing there's no way he's the son of God knowing if he were the son of God, he wouldn't be forced to endure such, such shame, such embarrassment. The son of God wouldn't be put on a cross. The son of God wouldn't allow himself to stay on the cross, which is the irony of their mocking. The truth is that Jesus is in fact the son of God and it is actually his staying on the cross, his commitment to carrying out his father's will that proves himself to be the son of God. They think, there's no way this is the Son of God. 
But Matthew wants us to think this is the only way for the son of God. If he comes down, he's not the son of God. But because he is, he stays because he was committed to carrying out his father's will and laying down his life for his sheep. That's his coming down from the cross wouldn't prove what they thought it would. But yet that's what they say. But they also say, verse 41, it's not just the people, it's the chief priest, the religious leader saying he saved others, he can't even save himself. He's the king. King of Israel, let him come down. If he comes down, we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires. For he said, I am the son of God. Again, none of these things are said in earnest. They don't believe these things. That They're mocking this man on the cross. And they assume, like the people in verse 40, they assume if he saved, if he saved himself, that would be enough evidence for them. If he came down off the cross, they say, we will believe in you. Which is, is ironic, I think, or telling at least that they understand the right response to the son of God, don't they? Hey, we'll believe in you. We know we're supposed to believe in you. Just, just give us more evidence and we'll do what we're supposed to do. The problem is they don't see the man on the cross is the son of God. That even on the cross ought to be believed in. They assume if, if only he trusted God, that he'd be delivered. His suffering is evidence that he doesn't trust God. Maybe, maybe you've gone through suffering in your life and someone's told you that. Hey, if you're suffering, it's because you don't believe God enough. Well, well, that's what these Pharisees are, are charging Jesus with. And that's not true. It's not true. Suffering does not mean that God, that, that you are lacking trust in God. Do not believe that. That's not true. But that's what they say. He, he trusts in God. Let, let God deliver him. And again, the irony of the truth is, is that these, the, these terms, that what they're saying actually does happen. Right? They, these things are true. In fact, Jesus is the one we ought to believe in. And in fact, he would come down from the cross. He would. Not the way they expected, but he would come down from the cross and his trust in God is actually what kept him on the cross and his trust in God and his, his trust in God to the point of death is actually what led to him. He was delivered. He was delivered, but his deliverance would be through death and not from death. God's plan, they could not even imagine that God would save sinners through the death of his son. They couldn't imagine that. Their, their, their categories don't, don't function as they see this man on the cross. And so they're mocking him. But what is happening here in the crucifixion of Jesus, the crucifixion of the son of God, we, we see this one, the, the incarnate one, the second person of the Trinity who's, who's taken on flesh has become a man and he's willingly going to the cross. Carrying out, carrying out the will of the father, dying in the place of sinners, accomplishing the most significant act and event in the entire history of the world. And the entire time that Jesus is, is doing this, fulfilling his mission, carrying out his purpose, you have men and women, soldiers, religious leaders, mocking and ridiculing the one who not only was dying to death to bring people peace with God, but the one who was in the beginning with God, the one who in the beginning was God, the one eternal word who took on flesh and had created all things, those people notwithstanding. The creator of all is suffering on the cross and the, the people that he died to save are mocking him. It is this reality, the fact that sinful men and women don't see or recognize or understand what is going on, nor that they are taking part in the greatest act of evil in all of history, 
That leads to the second point I want, to see, I want you to see from these verses, which is the terror of the text or the terror in this passage. I mean, as we step back and realize the great evil that's taking place here, it's important that we grow familiar with the crucifixion story. We, we know what happens. We know how it ends. But Matthew is recording this. He doesn't want us to miss the terror of what's going on. Listen to what one commentator said about verses 30, 32 through 50 which is this first section. He says, these, these verses do not encourage or inspire. Right? If, you want to, if you want to pick me up for the day, you don't necessarily go to these. They don't encourage or inspire, but rather, here's what they do. They depict human sin and its frightening freedom in the unfathomable divine silence. There is, he says, terror in this text. That's where I got the, the, the heading from. There's terror in this text. The mocking and torture of the innocent and righteous Son of God are not intended to make, but to shatter sense. To portray the depths of irrational human depravity. That's what's going on here. There is terror here. This is human evil at its worst. Crucifying the Son of God. And throughout this entire process, Right? Jesus has been innocent from the get-go, from the garden to the high priest's house to before Pilate, and now before the soldiers, and now heading to Calvary. He is innocent, but no one will take a stand. Peter won't even acknowledge that he knows him. No one will take a stand. From, in a matter of hours, he goes from standing before the council to being sentenced to death by crucifixion. And we ought to feel the weight of this. An innocent man is being crucified. He's being crucified by deceptive and evil, sinful men. And that's, that's terror in this text. So we, we ought to feel the weight of that. But that's not the greatest terror from this text. The greatest terror from this text comes in verses 45 and 46. Because, because up to verses 45 and 46, Jesus has been the passive sufferer. He has, for the most part, been, been silent but now in verses 45 and 46, Jesus takes center stage and, and what he says takes the, the focus of Matthew. And so notice what he says uh, that, is, that is preceded by what happens before what he says. So, so in verse 45, the land goes dark. The, the sun stops shining. So, so the sixth hour to the ninth hour, the, that, is, that, that would have been 12 noon to 3 p.m. So, so that's the sixth hour is noon, the, the ninth hour is 3 p.m. And the land goes dark from noon to three, which, which that's not normal. So you, you have this, this divine or this cosmic testimony that something significant is happening here on this, this place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Something cosmically significant is happening because the land, the, the sun is blotted out and it goes dark. It's as if all of creation is testifying, something's wrong. There's a glitch in all of creation. And so, so there's something going on. But then in verse 46, we get to the climax of the terror. After three hours on the cross, in the midst of the sun being darkened, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the cry on the cross. The final cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the cry that Matthew records here. And did you know in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is the only time where Jesus addresses God without calling him Father. 
every other circumstance where Jesus addresses God in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, he addresses him as father. In the garden, as tense as that was, as much, as much pressure as he's under, as much as, much as he's suffering what, what's, or, or, or thinking about what's coming ahead, even there he says, Father, if possible, let the cup pass from me. Father, not my will, but yours. But there's no cry to Father here. Instead, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in this cry, Jesus is, is quoting from a well-known psalm, Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, you have David. It's a psalm of David where David asks the question, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because David, in the midst of his suffering in Psalm 22, he wants to know, God, where are you? I am an innocent sufferer. Why are you letting me go through this? Why am I suffering? And here in the crucifixion, Matthew records Jesus quoting this psalm because Jesus is the righteous sufferer, the fulfillment of the innocent one's suffering. He's the fulfillment of the psalmist's cry. He was, guilt, he was not guilty, he was innocent. He was pursued by his enemies. And here as he ends the, nears the end of his life, Matthew wants us to know that Jesus cries out because in this moment, Jesus was forsaken by the Father. He was forsaken. He, he was abandoned, yes, by his own people, yes, by his disciples, by the Roman government who, who crucified an, an innocent man. He was for, forsaken, abandoned by all those, but more than any of those here at his death, he was forsaken by the Father. This isn't a picture of serene Jesus enduring his crucifixion calmly and peacefully. He was suffering. Physically, yes, Painful, yes, but he was crying out because he was forsaken by his father. And he was forsaken because of what was taking place there on that cross at that moment. I mean, as we consider the, the sacrificial nature of the death of this one, he is a substitute. His death would pay the penalty for the sins of others. So he must have been forsaken because on the cross, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, he was made sin. He became sin for us, for our sake. God the Father made him, the Son, sin, him who knew no sin, to be sin. Christ was made sin and not left there just to stay, but was made sin and then punished. The full cup of God's wrath was poured out on the Son he, he drank the full cup of God's wrath to the dregs, all of it, paid in full the price of our redemption. Christ was forsaken so that we might not be forsaken. That's what was happening. He was forsaken. Christ was made sin for us. That little word for, listen to what one author says. Among all the mysteries of, of salvation, this little word for exceeds all of them. This small word, for, F-O-R, illuminates our darkness and unites Jesus Christ with sinners. He died for us. He was acting on behalf of us, his people, as our representative and for our benefit. Christ was crucified for us. And he was. I'm reminded of the hymn that, that Charles Wesley, And Can It Be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me? who caused his pain for, for me, who him to death pursued? Do you remember how he responds? Amazing love, 
How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? But that, that's what's happening, friend, on the cross. This is why I want you to see the terror in these verses. We, we see the extent to which human depravity goes. It's crucifying the one that came to save it. And we see this human depravity in the Jewish religious leaders who are set on destroying Jesus, right? the ones that push Pilate. We see the human depravity in Pilate who, who could have prevented this. We see it in the Roman soldiers who, who only viewed crucifixion as a, as a sport. This is for their entertainment. We, we see it in Judas who after three years with Jesus, he decides I'm going to betray this man. I'm going to hand him over. We see the ugly face of human depravity in the many faces that take part in this sequence of events. Right? All of these human actors are implicated and guilty, but hear me when I say this, we see it in, in you and in me. If we step back and think about the entire program of salvation, the entire purpose behind the plan of redemption, the, the sole purpose of Jesus being born, to save his people from their sins, it is us, our sin and our rebellion, the price of redemption was the death of his son. Our sin demanded this price be paid. Which means that there's, there's not one of us, myself included, who can stand back from this passage looking down our nose at these evil men thinking they are so bad. To do that is to miss the point of the text, to miss the point of the crucifixion of Christ and to miss the hope of the gospel. Christ died for us while we were still his enemies. Thus, the terror of this text, the evil committed against the Son of Man, shouldn't lead us to anger at others, but should, like a mirror, point us back to our own prone-to-wonder sinful hearts in order to recognize we're all implicated and realize that Jesus paid for our sin. He died for us. What grace, what mercy that, that he would endure such hostility, this hostility, in order to save sinners, enemies? He died to, to make us enemies his friends. What, what a wonderful, merciful savior. The terror leads us to awe and wonder and worship. But notice the third thing here in this, this passage, the, the sovereignty of the savior. Look there at verse 50. Matthew says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Matthew wants you to know, he wants me to know, he wants everyone to know without a shadow of a doubt that even though it appears as though Jesus is being tried, beaten, mocked, and crucified mercilessly by all those involved, despite that appearance, Matthew wants us to know there's one person who's in charge here. There's one person who's orchestrating the events here and that one person is the one person that least appears to be most in charge. Because even here, even as Jesus breathes his last, Matthew tells us, Jesus says, okay, it's finished. I'm yielding up my spirit. It's over. He is still the sovereign savior as he suffers and dies on the cross. In fact, John tells us, the gospel of John tells us that this last cry, Matthew doesn't say what he cried, but John says the last cry is, it is finished. And when it is finished, the price of redemption has been paid. When that has happened, when, when he has suffered the wrath sufficiently, then he says, okay, it's done. Now I can die and I'm gonna die when I want to and I'm gonna give up my spirit. He is the suffering servant, but he's the sovereign savior. In fact, church father Chrysostom says of this, for this cause he cried with the voice, that it might be shown that the act was done by power. 
He cried that it might be known that, that this cry, this giving up of his spirit was, was an act of power. In fact, another commentator said most of the crucified were, were in a state of absolute exhaustion at the end, unable to talk or think and, and delirious, but Jesus' utterance of a loud shout does not comply with this and supports the view to some, that to some extent his death was voluntary. voluntary. I don't think it's to some extent, I think it's to every extent. But, but this is something for us to behold here at the Lotus Point as the innocent and, and righteous one suffering on behalf of the guilty as the forsaken of the Father, even then he is willingly day, laying down his life. And so we see the, the sovereignty of the Savior. John 10, 18. That's reminded of that. In the crucifixion, as you read this, you should remember John 10, 18, where Jesus says to his disciples, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. No one takes his life from him. He freely lays it down. He, said, he continues, I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Again, what a savior. What a savior. Well, that's the crucifixion, which then leads to our final section, the consequences. Verses 51 through 61, this, this final section, the consequences. And, and the thing I want you to see is, is that we have the crucifixion, comes and goes, but then, then Matthew focuses on the consequences or, or the aftermath. And, and what he records here in verses 51 through 61, they're, they're all being conveyed as, as evidence or attestation of the significance of what just happened. Lest we think that this death marked the end of another maybe rebel revolutionary figure, Matthew says, no, 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 this was no normal death here. So, so lots of things testify to what just happened, the significance of that. So, so notice the attestation there. there there's almost, it's almost as if Matthew is, is recording a threefold witness to, to, to give a true account or a true witness to the identity of Jesus to combat the false witnesses of, of the people and the soldiers and the religious leaders. But, but these, these threefold witnesses that he brings forward here are the, the curtain in the temple, nature itself, and a Roman centurion. So, so these, these are the things attesting to what just happened, the, the significance of that. So first, the temple, specifically the, the curtain in the temple. So Matthew verse 51 records, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And so the, this temple, this is a massive temple, 60 feet high and 30 feet wide, and it was torn not from the bottom up, but from the top down. This is, this is symbolic of a divine act. God does this. And this, this curtain was significant because this was the wall of division between the, the holy place and the most holy place. And, and so you couldn't get behind the curtain. That's where God dwelt. Access was restricted. And so here it is, death, the temple curtain is torn. This is God making a, a, a declarative act, attesting something has happened. This is, this is not only a judgment on the temple, but this is a, a, an opening of a new way. And attests to the fact that, that access to the Lord doesn't go through with the curtain anymore. The curtain is gone. Which is to say the sacrifices and the rituals of the temple life in Jerusalem, they're no longer relevant or necessary. Because in this death, through the death of Jesus, a new way has been opened. Now men can freely access the Holy of Holies. And so the temple is, is going to be phased out. There's no need for the temple, just as Jesus said. God is validating what the Son had said. The new temple is going to be raised in three days, and, and access to God is going to, become, going to come through him. And so the center point of God's dealing with his people is no longer a temple in Jerusalem and never will be again. It is his son who was crucified and raised. And so the temple curtain is torn. This is a divine declaration. But notice also nature itself witnesses. 
Not only does, does the curtain tear from top to bottom, but also there's earthquakes. The earth shakes, and, and, and Matthew says that rocks were split, which goes to show just like the hours of darkness, something is going on here in Jerusalem that transcends human activity. This is no normal occurrence. This divine attestation that the sun has suffered and died, which I can, I can, get, I can get my mind on board with, with what happened there. It makes sense that there's earthquakes. Rocks are, are split. That's what happens. That's, okay, I got that. But, but what doesn't make sense, or, or at least what I find difficult to understand, is what Matthew records next. I imagine maybe some of you here had never heard these verses before. L- listen to verse 52 and 53. Matthew says, The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, that means three days later, these raised saints went into the holy city and appeared to many. I mean, that's crazy, right? Is it just me? I mean, Matthew is the only gospel writer to record this event. And in fact, Matthew's the only New Testament writer who says anything about this. This is all we have. And so, so maybe the openings of the tomb are caused by the earthquake. I think the tombs opening are actually divine activity also. But maybe the earthquake causes the tombs to be open. That's possible. But what isn't possible is for an earthquake to wake up dead people. That doesn't happen. But that's what Matthew says happened. The tombs were opened. And then Matthew, notice how he continues. I think this helps us understand what's going on here. Matthew says the tombs were opened, period. That event happens. And then Matthew fast forwards three days and says, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they, that is the bodies of the saints who had died and and been raised, they came out, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, if you've never heard of this, don't worry. I'm, I've never seen a passion play that included this, these, these characters. But here they are. So, so what do you make of this? Well, first we just recognize there's a lot of questions unanswered, right? Who were these saints? I, we don't know. We're, we're only left knowing these were Old Testament saints who had died and had been buried, presumably in and around Jerusalem. Maybe they're unnamed. Maybe King David was there. Who knows? Identity is not, not given to us. What happened to them? Where did they go after they went into the holy city? Right? We don't hear anything else about them, so we don't know. Were they raised with resurrection bodies like Jesus was raised with? Or were they like Lazarus who, who was just raised from the dead and then would die again? We don't know. I mean, for what it's worth, I think these saints were, were taken up with Christ. I think they were given resurrection bodies that followed the resurrection of Christ and, and they ascended back into heaven, which... which I wish there was more, but there's not. So, so there's questions left unanswered. And, and we don't know them. We'll, we'll have to wait to meet them in heaven. Maybe there's a section in heaven, right? The, the tombs of the saints raised. But, but here's what I think is going on here. Let me tell you why I think Matthew records this event. First, we can't miss the fact that, that they were not raised and did not come out of the tomb until after Jesus was raised. Matthew makes sure to include that. So it's the resurrection of Jesus that precedes their resurrection. That's significant there. Second, as tempting as it is for us to, to, to focus on these individuals, they're not the point. In fact, the fact that there's, in fact, that there's no, no other, nothing else about them in the Bible helps us think rightly about them. They're not the point. Matthew wants us to see the connection between the death of Christ and the resurrection of his people. I think that's his point. While Jesus is the first fruits, the, the one who paves the way for the resurrection of everyone who follows, there's no resurrection of God's people without the death of Christ. I think that's why he includes it here. Christ has died, and by the way, because of this, now the tombs are open and, and P 
people, his people, followers, people who believe in God are going to be raised. So, so that Jesus' death is connected to the resurrection of his people. That there's no resurrection without the death of Christ. There's no life apart from the death of Christ on the cross. I think that's why Matthew records this. As a reminder, as a promise to, to his readers and to us that the death of Christ, which is going to be closely followed by his resurrection, that this death is what every resurrection unto life is directly linked to. You don't have a resurrection without a death. So I think he's, he's, he's tying the death of Christ with the resurrection of his people. But that's all Matthew gives about us, gives to us about that. But notice the, the last witness here mentioned is the centurion, verse 54. The only thing I'm going to say about this is that Matthew sheds a, a bit of hope in this dark scene. When, when the divine witness of God and the events taking place there observed, there are at least a few, a Roman centurion and those who are with him, who see what takes place, are filled with awe and, pr- and proclaim, rightly so, Truly, this was the Son of God. As we read this, we we recognize this is the right response. This is reading the evidence rightly. So so this is a man, a Roman centurion, and those who are with him who recognize this was no ordinary man, but rather this man is who he proclaimed to be. Truly, this was the Son of God, is what he proclaims, and those with him. And so we, we do have someone who rightly recognizes what's going on. So there's another attestation, a human attestation of what has gone on here. But the last thing from these verses as we, as we close is to, to notice Matthew recounts or records the eyewitnesses who see what are, what's happening here. So, so many women were there, he says, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And they're mentioned because they saw Jesus die. They're, they're eyewitnesses. They saw it. They were there. And not only them, but you have this, this, this mention of this rich man from Arimathea named Joseph which I think is fulfillment of, of Isaiah 53. Go back and look at how his grave was made with the rich. I think this is, Matthew says he was a rich man. Why does that matter? Well, it's a fulfillment of Isaiah 53. But, but Joseph is also a, an eyewitness who not only saw that Jesus was dead, but actually got the body from Pilate. And so, so Joseph gets the body and, and he takes Jesus, the body of Jesus, to be laid in a tomb. And it's a new tomb. It's Joseph's tomb. And no one had been laid there before. There, there's no mix up here. This is a new tomb that, that Joseph lays a corpse in. And, and this is the, these followers of Jesus, they, they don't want the, 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 the body of Christ, their, their renowned teacher, to, to, to suffer, uh, be exposed or to be ridiculed or mocked. And so they want to get, the Romans would leave them there for days or take them down and put the next ones up and just leave them rotting uh, on the ground. And, and they won't let that happen to Jesus. They, they want dignity and honor, so they get a tomb. And Joseph, verse 60, laid the body of Jesus in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. So this is what happens. This is what happens when someone dies. That's the point Matthew is saying. This person, Jesus, who was on the cross, he suffered and died. He wasn't kind of dead. He wasn't unconscious. He was dead. And you have eyewitness accounts. You have someone taking a body and putting it in a tomb. In verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb, which is to say, they saw where Joseph put the tomb. They knew the tomb. And this prepares the way for the coming verses when these two women are going to come to the tomb again and they come with spices. They, they want to give a proper burial. That they want to give Jesus the honor, his body, that the honor that is due. And when they show up next time, they're going to realize that, that those burial rites are not necessary. 
but we'll have to wait to see that until next week. But, but I just want to close with this final application, which, which you, you've, you've heard it all throughout, but my, my point is simply this. The point of this passage, Christ came to take away sins by dying on the cross in the place of sinners. And, and that's, that's, that's what God has done in the death of his son. And I simply want to, I want, I want to tell you there are two responses to that. You can reject it, or you can love the one who died and paid for your sins on the cross. That's it. And so, and so I trust many of you. You're trusting in Christ. Your hope is in him. And, and I want to encourage you to love Christ, to remember Christ. He paid for your sins. You have peace with God through him. Greater love has known that he lays down his life for his friends. While we are still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And so if, you're, if your faith is in Christ, be encouraged, brother, sister. Be encouraged. Your sin has been paid for. You have peace with God. You've been given new life and hope and joy. But, but your other option is to reject him and to leave here still dead in your sins and trespasses with sins that have yet to be paid for. And I don't want you to leave here dead in sins and trespasses. I want you to, to recognize that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins so that you would not have to pay for your sins because all sins will be paid for. And it's either paid for by Christ on the cross, which brings peace between you and God and, and eternal life, or paid for by you for eternity, separated from God. And so the call of the gospel is repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins, believe that Christ died in your place and was raised three days later and guarantees and promises eternal life to those who trust in him. I'd love to talk with you about that. There are many here who'd love to point you to faith in Christ. But, but that's, that's your call this morning. Let me pray as we close and we'll sing, sing in response to this, this word.